Welcome to the 360 Recruiting Podcast, a podcast for OU recruiting fans by Sooners360.com. Each week, we catch you up on the latest in OU recruiting news and provide opinions and evaluations on all things OU football recruiting. I'm Chris Mason, lead recruiting analyst for Sooners360.com. I'm joined this week by my regular co-host, Caleb Cummings. Sooners360.com talent evaluator and opinion creator. This is episode 67, titled February Signing Day Memories. As always, we will begin with the latest in Sooner recruiting news. And the first topic is we have no portal news at all to talk about. I think, but Chip Kelly just left UCLA, so... Maybe there is going to be some news to talk about at some point. But for now, there is no news to talk about. It should not be any recruiting news to talk about. Ryan Grubb, the offensive coordinator for Alabama, has bolted to the Seahawks, and he's reportedly taking part of the staff with him. Although it has been pointed out, which it doesn't matter because class has been going on for a month. Uh, So people are, I think, probably making this more – of an issue than it is. People have pointed out that he took the Seahawks job, I think, at like day 31 after them, DeBoer, taking the Alabama job, effectively, you know, making sure there were, they, nobody could take advantage of the uh, the window. But again, doesn't really matter. Alabama started school a month ago, and those kids, I'm sure, will Alabama likely see, I bet they see another exodus from the portal in uh, in May, in the spring window. Yeah, I bet you're right. I bet same thing for UCLA, even though they're on a quarter system, which throws things off. But I think it actually throws things off on the other side of it, not helping yeah. guys leave early now. Because I think they yeah. started like, if we remember right, um, Dylan Gabriel was like a day before starting classes at UCLA, like January 1st or 2nd or like the 3rd or something. The, the date on it, but quarter system, you start really early, right? And then, and then, you know, you, and then you end the quarter ends and, you know, like April and then you go into late June. Um, but so that's sort of the way the quarter system usually works. I was on quarters at UGA for, uh, for a year, but mm-hmm. I, so the portal's probably closed for OU fans until after the spring game, until after, uh, after May. So, no portal recruiting to talk about, but we have high school football recruiting. The page is turned over to 2023-5. Uh, signing day was, official signing day was Wednesday, and OU signed no one. There was no press conference. There were no coaches. No one was up early in the morning waiting to see who might sign or who could, could sign. So it was, you know, uh, anticlimactic, no drama, nothing whatsoever really going on. So... I, that's just the way, just the way it was. So, but 2025 recruiting is, is flying off. I know you got a commitment from Ryan Foji. He is an offensive tackle from Cypress Park in Houston. He's 6'5", around 275, 280. And uh, just my initial read, my initial view on him is uh, uh, watching his film is he's a big athletic Good and pass pro uh, offensive tackle prospect that there's there's a lot of potential here. But Caleb, I'll give you some runway to give us kind of a. Uh, you already gave this uh, scouting report on our on our message board on Sooners360.com. So 
uh, of listeners of our pods and our members to our site. I kind of getting this a little bit late, but Caleb, if you'd give us uh, give give you a, give you a little runway to give us some more kind of a more in depth report since O lines kind of what we have you one of the areas we really kind of have you look at. Yeah, no, I mean I like Foji quite a bit. I think the probably the first thing that jumps out to me is well two parts. One, he's extremely well coached. You know, uh, the high school he goes to there in the Houston area, you can, I think you see it kind of right away. He plays right tackle, the left tackle opposite of him, uh, watching both of them, just their feet in their pass sets, uh, their kick slide, right? They're kind of setting on the stool, right? They're playing under their butt. They got their butt under them. Just some technique things. When I watched it, I, I came out going immediately going, okay, like they're well coached. And then you watch kind of the offense around them. And I think you see that as well. Uh, you know, but to me, and we've done this, you know, a little bit on the site and we've dug in and shown some of the data, like he is somewhat the prototypical, right? And like when I say prototypical, like we really dug into it. Uh, and I've done kind of been accumulating this data for years, just uh, for whatever reason, I, you know, probably my mind's always like picking up on, uh, you know, just uh, like consistent, whether it's traits or you just watch it and seeing, uh, you know, uh, seeing things. But notice that you know, there's all these offensive linemen in the NFL that are going like early, mid, late rounds, guys you've never heard of. You know, you turn on a game on Sunday, Monday, they go through the starting lineup. What, where do these guys go to college? You look into it. You look at it from a recruiting perspective, and I think everyone has this assumption that, oh, your offensive linemen, your best guys coming out of high school are guys like Caden Proctor. They're 6'6", they're 330 pounds in high school, and they're going to go on to be these future monsters. And I, what I, the data actually shows is that's not correct. Like the average height weight for an offensive tackle that is in the NFL starting Pro Bowl, All Pro, all of these things for when they were juniors and seniors in high school, about 265 pounds, 270 pounds, 280 pounds, right? There's, I think it lends itself to like your breakdown there of Ryan, right? You see the technique, but what I also see is a fairly athletic guy. I see a guy that he's a, he's a coordinated athlete, right? He's not all over the place. He's not awkward. He's under control. He's at balance. Uh, he's got good core strength. You know, those things are just so important when like you are fighting a physically fighting another big man, right? I think that's why you see wrestlers do so well is they just, you know, a good understanding of center gravity, core strength, right? Understanding how your body moves. Uh, and, and he's, he's got those things. You know, I, I would say at 275, 65, maybe 66, he's a long guy. I don't have any doubt that he's an offensive tackle. Uh, I think you see, you know, again, some of the, like really good grip strength. You see some technique stuff from him that quite honestly is kind of surprising at that stage. There's a clip in there where playing against, uh, I think it's, uh, a kid that's a, uh, a, oh gosh, Oklahoma's recruiting is out of the Houston area. His dad played at Texas. He's a top like 100, top 250 defensive lineman, uh, big white kid. I can't think of his name. Damon's actually friends with dad. Uh, what to pull it Landon, later, Landon Rink. Landon Rink. Yes, yes. There's a there's a clip in his highlight of against Rink, right? And Rink 
comes off the edge and immediately goes to convert speed to power on Foji. Like, hey, I'll, he's a big guy. I'm going to run through him. And you see Foji, you know, he just snaps his hands, slaps him down, you know, and when, when Rink loses balance, he just shoves Rink's head into the ground, right? And it's like, okay, like that's that's a kid that, again, is just well-coached, understands some things, uh, you know, and like I say, Kids that are 6'5", 275 pounds as juniors in high school oftentimes are 6'5", 6'6", 290 when they're a senior, and they're 315 by the time they're coming out of a red shirt. You know, and, and that's really like the comp I gave was Bobby Evans. Uh, I think he's a little bit bigger, a little bit longer than Bobby, but I, I think there's I think there's some definite similarities there. You know, I think, you know, uh, and just in terms of uh, – how he plays. Bobby was a fighter. He was an athletic guy, uh, really good at tackle. What he was, he wasn't, you know, Orlando Brown in terms of just coming off the ball and caving an entire side of the defensive line down, you know, and just washing guys. And Ryan's not that right now, right? Uh, but he is really adept that you see him get in space and block. He'll have to continue to work on the things everybody does, get his pads leveled down, get stronger. Uh, you know, just to be more of a mauler, more dominant at the point of attack in the run game. But, you know, don't, don't take that as saying he's not really good in that space right now. You know, it just like projecting forward, you, you, you know, you're going to be going against much bigger, much stronger guys. But, uh, by the time he faces those guys, he, again, he'll be much bigger and much stronger. So I love, I absolutely love the tools that are there to work with. And I think I put this on the board uh, on like Friday in a conversation about him. You know, I I really love where Bill has this class. You know, he's taken heat. We've given some heat. I've given some heat. There's been, you know, there's tons of stuff, right? There's good and there's bad. and You can nitpick. But everybody knows 2025 offensive line class, super important. I mean, absolutely vital. But it also aligns with an amazing class, both nationally and specifically, you know, or more specifically, rather, uh, regionally, right? So many kids in the region. And so for, for Bill to already have a, a tackle that, you know, is a, you know, a, what do you call him, high ceiling. I think Ryan's, a, he's a top 250, like a 5.84 star. He's right in that range, right? Uh, and, and then you have Hollenbeck inside, a guard center. To have both those pieces locked in, but still have really his entire board still wide open, right? It's not in that place where they got last year where, you know, I think we talked about in May where I was like, okay, you've got five spots and you've got 13 guys that you feel great about. It's like, well, that's, that's great, but you're also in this tough spot where you don't have any offensive linemen committed. You've got to bat, you know, almost 50% to land that class from your board. Well, right now, you know, he's probably got three to four spots left. I would bet three because I would assume they're going to, again, going to almost always hold a spot for a transfer guy. You know, so they've probably got three more for a class of five, and he's got the entirety of his board wide open with some elite guys out there that are high on Oklahoma. So, you know, as you say that, for as, for as hard of a time as, you know, everybody sometimes gives Bill, I think he's in a, he's in a really good spot here in February of 24. Yeah, I mean, the oh, you didn't get their second offensive line commit until late late July, and that was uh, Eugene Brooks. Um, Isaiah Autry verbaled at the spring game 
But, you know, so to have two guys in the fold, February, we're recording this on Sunday, February 11th, because uh, we had some technical problems with our Thursday recording. So we, we, we're redoing this to give you guys a better product. But the other thing I like that, that um, with these two guys is both of them were in OU summer camp. So Bill got to coach both Hollenbeck and Foji. He got to evaluate them in person. He got to see, you know, to a certain degree, their coachability. He got to, to, to really, you know, uh, I think for Bill, being able to really see a guy work out and sort of, you know, eyes, eyes on everything he's doing, you know, able to pick up every, well, that's a, that's a problem. This is a problem, you know, um, but, you know, that I can fix this. I can fix that. And to, to get a sense of whether the kid can, you know, Bill, you know, everyone says Bill in summer camp is pretty much like Bill is, you know, most of the time, right? He's, he's, uh, you know, he's barking orders. He's, he's working with the guys. He's, he's coached them up. So I just think to have that, I think it helps on both sides, right? Bill has much more sort of personal knowledge on them. Um, I think what Bill can get out of watching these guys at two, you know, like at a two day camp event is probably, you know, it's, it's hard for us to estimate, you know, how, how valuable that is for Bill, right? Because of all the things Bill can pick up while that's going on, but also the kids really got, you know, they're getting coached by Bill. So they don't, they know what that is. They, they know what that's really going to be like, right? There's not, you know, there's always that facade of like, you know, um, you know, you know, you talk to players, they're always like, yeah, the guy who recruited me is not the guy who's coaching me. And for all of Bill's fault, all of Bill's faults, I don't think, I don't think that's the case with Bill. I think he's probably pretty genuine throughout the whole process, probably to his detriment. Uh, so I think the fact that they've already been coached by Bill is, uh, and seen Bill, you know, really experienced Bill telling them, no, you're doing it wrong. This is how you need to do it is, is an asset. I think that's a, that's a positive. And both guys really, wanted to be Sooners and wanted to be coached by Bill, which I think in a in a grind like position in the offensive line is also a benefit. Oh yeah. I mean I I, I would echo everything you just said there. You know, I, I think from a from a scouting perspective, seeing the guys in person and having them up close right there next to you, like there's just nothing more important. Like it's the I think really probably the most valuable piece. You know, jokes sometimes you can watch particularly like quarterback tape these days because of the type of offenses. And it's like, I, you know, I, I joked in the, you know, in the run up, right? Like I, you could watch Zerbrug's film and you could watch, uh, you know, the younger Arch Manning like, tape in high school and be like, well, I, you know, I, I think Zerbrug's a bigger, strong, bigger, stronger athlete. Like I can't tell, like how was one kid, uh, you know, the 657th ranked player in the country and the other kids at consensus number one, like help me understand uh, you know, you need to be able to so many times, I think, to see them, to size them up, to get a feel for them, to understand, you know, like, okay, uh, you know, what I'm seeing on film, this matches or like, Hey, he's, he's much, much better. And I think also to your point, right. Uh, I, which I think is, I, I think it is a benefit. I think it's a plus, but Bill only knows how to be Bill. Right. I think it's, it's just, uh, you know, particularly in the day and age of uh, free and open transfer portal with NIL and open free tampering attached to that. Uh, it, you know, if you don't have that, you're already putting yourself behind the eight ball to, to be set up for, you know, uh, 
for some heartache when you get some kids on campus and and somebody you know in Missouri reaches out and offers them you know eight hundred thousand or whatever, right? It's like oh, okay, well you know, I'm just going to bolt because I don't have any connection to you and don't really like you to begin with. Uh, so you know I think that's it's it's definitely not nothing having those guys come in and then yeah you know kids that kids that truly uh, want to be a part of it. For a number of reasons, and some of the stuff Ryan has said, I think uh, you know Holland Tech as well. It sounds like, from what I've I've gathered, like they wanted to be Sooners, but I would almost say, in some sense, that's like the second, the secondary part of it, and and the bigger part is like they seem like they're maybe a little bit wired like Bill. You know, they've talked about like wanting to play for Bill. They know he's the best, and they know he's hard. This is their words, right? And they want to be a part of that. And uh, anytime you can find, you know, guys at those positions where it's a grinder, they're going to run to, you know, difficulty uh, rather than running away from it. Uh, you know, that's 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 uh, that's unique. And I think that gives those guys a, a leg up and potentially being successful. So that was the and, and Foji was kind of a little bit of a surprise commitment. Uh, I don't think we most of the recruiting analysts I know we didn't kind of see it coming. So. There's other, are there other commits coming? And so we talked last week about a silent verbal that's out there. And, and according to everything, it hasn't, it hasn't sort of popped for lack of a better term. Foji wasn't it. Um, and despite all the noise around Jonah Williams, um, Jonah Williams is not the silent verbal. So what happened with Jonah Williams is, um, inside Texas on on3.com posted a prediction for him to OU. And I think then we saw some from Texas A&M and then we saw some from Texas sites. Then um, our, uh, our frenemy, uh, long time, long time, you know, sooner uh, recruiting analyst over at on three, Josh McQuistian, um, who put it, he put in a crystal ball for, for Boom, uh, for Jonah Williams. And he doesn't do that lightly because I, uh, he knows, the, the backlash you'll get from his fan base there. So he put one in and then Steve Wiltfong put one in. Uh, and then Jonah Williams is like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, just all these predictions, what's, what's going on? And it was a little bit like, I think coaching staff, I think the coaching staffs at Texas, Texas A&M and a couple other places when they were talking to their various sources were like, OU has a huge lead on this guy where, you know, our recruiting efforts don't seem to be going anywhere. So, um, what does that mean? I think it all, so what does all this mean? I think it means OU has a big lead for Jonah Williams, has done a fantastic job on recruiting him. And I'm not sure there's a better player in the class other than maybe Michael Fasusi at offensive tackle, uh, that OU has a chance of really signing. I mean, Jonah is a absolute beast at safety, cheetah. Could be a linebacker, but he I think he can play safety every down for OU or be that every down cheetah that you just gives you the matchup nightmare for offenses because you never quite know where he is or what he's doing. So let's just wrap this all up. I don't know when Jonah Williams will commit. June official visits would be my best guess, but maybe he comes up for a spring game or something and and decides to pull the trigger when it's not where he can kind of surprise folks a little bit. He can have his moment. But uh, overall, OU having a having what 
most folks consider a big lead for Jonah Williams is a great thing. And Caleb, I know, I know we love this kid on film and this, all these predictions are, it's kind of, kind of a weird little process, right? Because we, we would prefer folks <clears throat> let the kids have their moment, but oh, you leading for Jonah Williams. That's very good. Yeah, no, from a, from a process perspective and you and I've talked about this, I think it's, it's just a, such a weird, odd place we're in, right? For for years, you know, like Josh and other folks at 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 uh, recruiting sites, they would not divulge when a kid had given a silent commit, was getting a you know a video filmed, or was going through the process, or whatever that was. They had notified people around them. They would not, they you know, out of respect, and the and the wording was, "We want these kids to have their moment." Well, with social media, it shifted, right? Because they used to be able to add value and we're going to give access via, you know, video at camps, interviews, inside information, such and such. That's the value add. Well, that's disappeared. Now the kids control that. The kids are through social media. They're able to control their own message. So I think you've got these recruiting sites are, are scrambling, trying to find how can we add value, you know, and on threes really, you know, like they're trying to pin theirs as like, you know, I would say it's, you know, it's a gazy, like they're lying to everybody in the world about the value from an NIL perspective and just making stuff up, throwing crap against the wall, pretending that they're experts, trying to, you know, create this illusion that they know what they're talking about as it relates to NIL and they don't, right? Uh, I mean, if they do, they know what they're being told by other groups that are using them as a mechanism to try to, you know, negotiate further. So like, they're just, you know, they're a tool. It's the best way to put it. Uh, so it's odd because it feels like everything's flowing to Oklahoma. Maybe he's out looking to do a video. Maybe he's let some people know, getting some things lined up, but then there's that, gosh, you know, guys, I wanted to do this and you guys are all killing me now and everybody's expecting it. I didn't want to do it for two weeks or we're getting something done. And so these, you know, you just hate it. These guys are kind of just ruining everything for kids for their own, you know, try because they're trying to extract whatever, you know, value they can for their own business out of it. It's, uh, you know, there's a whole other conversation around irony probably as well. But as him as a player, I, to me, he's the he's the top player in the class. I, I actually might like Babalola a little bit more than Pasusi, just in terms of you know what I think they're going to become and what they will be. Uh, for me, like Jonah is like you nailed it right. He's the guy that he can play pure safety. He could probably play just straight Sam linebacker, or he can play Cheetah. I think when you when I look back at a lot of what Brent did at Clemson when he had Tanner Muse and Isaiah Simmons and Muse is a name. People are like, Oh, who's that? Like he's like an all AC safety. I think he actually plays linebacker in the NFL now. Uh, but you know, you would see him playing deep. You'd see Simmons playing deep. He just, Brent does so much from an aggressive look from his safety spot in terms of like, you know, how they help in the run game and how they help in perimeter quick passing game. But I think, uh, you know, Jonah is watching this film. He's just, he's got elite ball skills, elite size. Uh, kid can run, hit, can tackle in space. He's just, he's really, you know, in baseball, he'd be a five tool guy. And I think that's what he is in football. And, you know, if Oklahoma found a way to, to bring both he and is it, is it Tyra, uh, the young, the young, young man that was out of Vegas and they can move to California now. Uh, it's, um, you know, big, the tie. The tie tag away. 
Matai Tagalay. I think yeah, those six, two as a pair. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he, he's you know, six four one. Yeah, he's sorry, so talk over you. Yeah, he's six four one ninety five, and then you've got Jonah at six three two oh five, and if you could interchange those guys and keep them both on the field at you know most of the time, that's you know, and, and they and they're hitters and they fly all over the place, huge range, yeah, and, and exactly. coverage, that like and that and that flexibility thing where it's like you know depending on the formation. Either one, whether we're going to bring one down in the box and he's going to come as a blitzer, he's going to play the flats, he's going to cover a tight end, or the other one's going to be, you know, a deep half player. You, you just, there's that flexibility to do either one of them. They can both do both, all things and be really good at all things. You know, obviously we'll have some strengths and weaknesses, but that, you know, that, like I say, you're looking back at some of those Clemson defenses when you started to get into the elite range is when, they had some got some big guys up front, so stopping the run, and then they had some dynamic uh, pieces that were very flexible on the back end that Brent could do some unique things with. And Jonah is for sure that, and, and Matai as well. Yeah, so that's that's the Jonah Williams story. Um, like I said, we, we, we use that 10 commits, and we still have a silent verbal ready to fall. and. Basically, right now, it looks like there are about maybe four names that OU has a big lead on that have forecasts and crystal balls from various networks. And in the names we talked about last week, we'll just kind of re- quickly review them. It's Kobe Sellers, the cornerback athlete from Pearland, Texas. Tory Blaylock, the running back from Humble. Max Granville, the... Uh, defensive end, edge linebacker, drop linebacker. Again, another piece um, you could use a little bit all over the field from Sugarland, Texas. Uh, and then, Caleb, a name that's that's you're going to be very happy about is we're seeing a number of crystal balls recently go up for C.J. Nixon, the absurd athlete, defensive end, outs, edge rusher. From Weatherford, Oklahoma, who's a great basketball player, really good basketball player, uh, 6'5", 220, 225 maybe, um, just jump out of the gym. The, his high school football highlights are, are really good. But, Caleb, um, if OU were to add those, if those guys do all end up choosing OU, that's that's a significant – all those guys are – Sellers is top 150. Blaylock is top 200. Granville's top 100, depending upon who you're looking at. And Nixon has a couple of top 50 grades in the country. I mean, so that's four. That would be four pieces that are just, that'd be a lot of talent being added to, to the sooner to the sooner recruiting class if these guys all chose OU. Oh, no, like for, for sure. And it's it would be some, again, I think just getting uh, – the further Brent gets into, I think his his program and implementing everything, it's it's interesting. I think to see the compounding interest continue to accumulate, and I think that would be a part of it. I love, yeah. So Nixon is one of my my favorite guys. I put some stuff on the board, you know. Whenever uh, I'm thinking, maybe send it directly to some some of the some of our mods. But yeah, you watch his high school basketball stuff. Like you said, he's really good on the football field. Like he's a fantastic player, both two ways, defensively and offensively. Uh, and, you know, going both ways at 4A level may take a little bit away from being absolutely elite dominant 
on on just one side. You know, if they played him just at tight end slash receiver, when you see him leap and him play basketball, you'd think, oh my gosh, you know, those that level of ball skills. Or if you know, uh, and I don't, I don't think that like Western Oklahoma, Weatherford, four A. I don't know that they play. You know, the amount of like just spread, just offenses that are throwing the ball. So I don't know if he would have the ability to just you know, showcase like elite pass rush uh, ability as an edge guy, you know, in that, you know, against that high school competition. But he is, I mean, he, you look at the physical traits, the ability, the athletic ability, uh, it's, it's special, man. And, uh, and you start thinking about, yeah, here's a guy that, you know, plays football and basketball, but from all sounds of it, he's, you know, he, he plays football and goes through Weatherford's, you know, strength conditioning program they've got for football. But the majority of his everything else he spends year round has really been playing basketball growing up. You know, it's been and I think I've read, you know, the Weatherford as a group of guys that are have, that came up together, all playing basketball together from a time they were young kids. And they play again almost year round. You know, it's been a big focus. So you think about like what he's going to be in football. When he's just eating and lifting weights and playing football, it, you know, it's uh, there's no telling what that that'll grow into. I wouldn't say, oh, he's going to turn into, you know, an Alden Smith or something like, you know, of that, of that nature. But I mean, that's, you know, so many times when in, in the past 20 years of watching, you know, really it's longer than that. But in years of watching NFL draft, when you see these really freaky edge guys come out, you're like, gosh, where'd this guy go to high school? I don't remember him as a recruit. It's like, oh, well, it's because he was a, he was a big time basketball player and he played football too, but he was just an all around athlete, so he wasn't he didn't have kind of the hoopla around him. And and CJ CJ checks that he he, he fits that. So it's uh, and then I'll tell you the guy that I'm, you mentioned there that's probably one of the more inter- interesting ones is is Granville. Uh, just just given like his size and his and where he plays more of an edge, but he looks almost like more of a an outside linebacker in terms of size, you know, 6'3", 215, 220. Start to wonder, and we talked a little bit about this, and I'm sure we'll get into it, some of the stuff we're going to do, is how much more flexible and how much more multiple is Brent going to be as he continues to stack classes? Like how much are we going to see 335 and just various different looks and pressure packages from, you know, different guys? Because he seems to fit into, uh, you know, like a unique box. Yeah, it's interesting um, when you think about where we, we we were always talking about stacking classes. And I, I wrote a um, uh, my five recruiting thoughts on Friday, which I published on our website. And I was talking about how the 23 and 24 classes, when you kind of bunch them all together, that really there's it's hard to find other than not enough offensive linemen, which we've, we've gone in great detail on. When you mash the two classes together, it's, it's, just a, it's just amazing the talent upgrade going on on the Sooner roster, right? And well, so you- I, yeah, I'll, I'll say I didn't realize this, Chris, until uh, Josh Pate. I know he doesn't listen to our podcast or anything. Uh, <laughs> we interact, I've interacted with him a little bit. We've gone back and forth a little bit on Twitter, <laughs> you know, I, on different things. And I love even his takes I don't agree with. I love because it's thoughtful. 
It's well it thought is. out. He's a, you know, there's a, there's a reason why he has millions of millions of followers on on YouTube. Yes, right? he's, he's, he's passionate. He's he passionate about thoughtful. thoughtful. He doesn't do click, he doesn't do clickbait. Yeah. It's not clickbait. It's all intelligent. And he knows. Yes. And, he, and he and he's and he knows the sport. He doesn't do. He doesn't give you stupid unresearched answers. He doesn't. Exactly. The, the the big one I disagreed with him on with him talking about Texas A&M being like a top yeah. two type program. And the reason I disagreed with that is he was saying, oh, if the back end was fixed, you know, and I was like, well, that's like saying a dog would be the best animal in the world if it didn't bark. But like barking is what dogs do, you know. And so like that's but I digress there. He pointed this <laughs> out. He was he was talking about just the SEC and Oklahoma and Texas coming in and SEC fans having this perception that. Oklahoma and Texas are in for a rude awakening. And he laughed and said, I think that's right to some regard. He said, but he goes, when I say that someone's in for a rude awakening, he said, I think a lot of SEC teams are in for a rude awakening. And he actually pointed out something I didn't, I, I guess I just hadn't run the numbers on, is if you stack the last three recruiting classes together, it, it, it goes and you put them in the SEC, the only two teams that have recruited better than Oklahoma and Texas are Alabama and Georgia. And if you actually then pull back a little bit further and you look at like what Alabama has lost to the portal, I think Alabama's I think still right there above Oklahoma. It may not be above Texas, but you're you're looking at that gap has has shrunk a ton, right? Coming like back I, to the pack. Said, as I've said over and pack. over, like, yeah, I love DeBoer, right? But you know, you know, you go from like the best coach in the history of college football to not the best coach in the history of college football, there you're gonna lose some there, right? And so it's interesting. Because, yeah, I, I've looked at it like, you know, you take Dan Campbell and the Lions as a good example, right? And I heard, you know, years ago, a guy was like a mentor of mine pointed this out about like the the most important thing and really the rarest human trait, as he told me, is, is consistency. And, you know, compounding interest is really how you're going to win over time. And it's like hitting a golf ball. Like you can crush that thing. And as it leaves the tee, okay, it looks good, it looks good. The further it travels, you start to see like, okay, how far was my club face, you know, off? Because it starts to get off that path. And if, but if it was true, it, it stays true, right? And that only bears out over time and over distance. And I think that's why I really do, I hope anyway, and I think this year's actually will be really telling of the consistency that Brent has brought to the program and how he does everything and particularly how he stacked those classes. You know, Oklahoma will be going into a season where, you know, everybody's saying, oh, they're going to have six and a half or seven and a half wins. That's the, you know, the FanDuel or the MGM, like, you know, betting lines that have come out because I think whatever, you know, I think everybody has this, it's, I think there's some ignorance there for lots of things. It's not real in depth and hadn't been thought about, but, uh, they use the you ball know, game. They let the ball game well, cloud their vision a little bit. Well, I think it's not even just that. It's just also as well, like, you know, say what you will, like, uh, there was that perception that Oklahoma downgraded with Brent when they lost Lincoln Riley and that Lincoln's this amazing guy. And they look at it and they, oh, Oklahoma, and they haven't, they just, there's just, I don't know, they, they discount, they don't like Brent, whatever that is, right? Again, that's why I say a little bit of the Lions where it's like, okay, it takes some time. But once everything gets set, it just slowly starts to come together. And, you know, I, I think this will be a really telling year when Oklahoma's going to go out and they'll play two teams, which will be Alabama and Texas, that have, on paper, more talent than they do. 
So in year three, you know, Brent will have had a way to start to stack classes, stack talent, stack off seasons, his level of consistency, what he does, you know, we'll have to see, see that starts to, to bear itself out on the field just more and more. Yeah, I mean, I just uh, I'll close this comment. We'll move to the next uh, just some of the other visitors from last weekend. But but if you could stack PJ and then Danny Okoye and then CJ Nixon, if you could stack three years in a row of a top fifty defensive end type player in the nation, I know Okoye didn't have the that ranking, but we felt like he oh, was. He, and, yeah, and the coaches yeah, and our OU, OU coaches. <laughs> uh, I won't get you on that rant again. Um, the OU coach, I mean, we'll give this. Our inside sources told us the OU coaches viewed Danny Okoye at the same level as David Stone and Dominic McKinley. And we, that was direct yeah. as far. We won't, I, think, we won't, we I think you said this. Let's, let's be honest, though. Let's, like, like, let's rewind it even more. You said this because it was shared with us from sources. Like, and you yes. shared this, you know, I think, in April or I think it was May, May of 2023. Like the, yeah. the, the, the sources at OU said that this is when everybody thought Oakland was going to get Williams Nawari, right? That yeah. yes. to them, Danny Okoye was the best edge player on their board. Yeah, like they liked not him as much Williams as Nawari. They liked yeah. Danny Okoye more. They thought he was better player. I've said this over and over. Like it goes kind of back, to like like how's Colin Simmons a top fifteen player consensus in the country, and Danny Okoye is not even a top 100 consensus. Like, again, just line them up, like measure them, turn the tape on, do everything between those two human beings that play the same position. And you're going to find, well, Danny's bigger, stronger, taller, faster, longer, more explosive, more violent, better tape. But, okay, Collins played at Duncanville against better competition. He's a really good He's player. Very like good. the thing that very the, good. the thing that really bothered me about him is the first time I watched uh, Ellis Davis's tape at Prosper. Some of his best tape was in the playoffs <laughs> against against Colin Simmons at, Colin, uh, at Duncanville. It was like if he couldn't win with speed, he wasn't going to win. And against a really athletic tackle, which Ellis was, like he wasn't able to win with speed to the outside. And so you know he wasn't able to convert speed to power. You know or get underneath them. So I don't know. And that's, that's one like data point. Cause like you are correct. Colin Simmons, I'm not saying he's not, you know, a top 50 player in the country. What I am saying is Danny is a top 50 player in the country. Yeah. But if you just think so, about PJ, <laughs> PJ, I, I, I fed it up to you. I, 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 I laid it up for you there. But if you just think about OU's recruiting on the defensive line or or a defensive end. But if you just think about PJ, Danny Okoye, and possibly CJ Nixon, that 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 would be the best three-year run OU's had at defensive end elite kids. Since 2000, it would be the best three-year run ever. We've never had three guys in no, three classes yeah, in a row like that. You know, you look at the only thing I can think back to was like what the 2000 class. But, you know, Jimmy Wilkerson played linebacker in, call, in high school when they yeah. moved him to defensive end. I don't know if they did. I think they might have done it his sophomore year. So, but, you know, you would, if you would have called Jimmy a, an end, then you would say, well, Dan Cody and then Jimmy. And then right after, I think Alonzo Dotson was Jonathan, a, John, Jonathan, Jonathan Jackson, Jackson, North Shore. And then they, yeah. had, they landed Alonzo Dotson, who was like a top 100 player. Yeah, but I would this, say, you know, from a 
from just a, and Dawson was really good. Alonzo was a really good college player, but just from a like pure trait ability perspective, right? Like, so twitchy, long, athletic, all the stuff that, you know, the NFL goes, Oh, give me this for, for, you know, for our teams to rush the passer. I can't think of if they land CJ, I could not think of Oklahoma ever stacking three guys of that, of that potential up. You know, I think, you know, be truthfully, what what Oklahoma was able to do with Bob was oftentimes it was more guys of, you know, Jeremy Beal and Austin English, you know, types. It was guys that were fantastic football players. They coached up and got everything out of, but they were not uh, you know, they weren't six four, two fifty, run four five type guys. So um that's those are the guys we think is leading OU was, has a big lead on and the our the, the recruiting sites seem to indicate that. Oh, you did have visitors last weekend at a smaller group. Um, I'm going to focus on three big names. The first one we talked about a lot last week because uh, there's nothing there's nothing Caleb loves more than Danny Okoye than big pass receiving tight ends who can change football. And he's getting a lot of justification with this from the NFL. And uh, I mean, the Super Bowl, two both Super Bowl teams uh, have excellent, you know, excellent tight end. Excellent tight end games. So uh, Lincoln Cure visited from all of, all of he, he was on campus. We got social media evidence. He made it in. There was a lot of discussion with he was. And then Isaiah Gibson, the defensive end from South Georgia, from Warner Robins. For those that don't know, Warner Robins is a powerhouse in South Georgia. I could go on and on about the alums from there that have been big-time college players. And then speaking of a place that has some legacy alum connection to OU, then the other guy was Elijah Barnes, the linebacker from Dallas Skyline. Corey Nelson was a Dallas Skyline legacy. Dante uh, Dante Jones from the 85 National Championship team and two-time All-American replaced the boss at linebacker, uh, was from Dallas Skyline. So he's got some legacy there. Um, Texas had maybe probably a, a big lead on Barnes. I think OU got him on campus. He met Zach Alley. So I think OU's now in the hunt there, which is going to be interesting to see how the linebacker numbers work out. Um, Gibson is, again, that, that elusive. He's a defensive end. He's 6'5", 250. Uh, big kid. He probably could go a number of directions, uh, depending upon what happens with his development. And so the question is, can Chavis and Bates break through that Georgia high school defensive line barrier uh, that they haven't been, able to, haven't been able to land a kid from Georgia on the D-line the last two classes, even though they got connections there, OU's recruited kids there. So Gibson seems really very interested in OU. So we'll keep an eye on that storyline because, you know, his tape is really, really good. He's, I mean, he's a big kid. Again, you, um, to, to steal Caleb's lines, you you add as many big, fast, long, defensive ends, pass rushers as, as you can get. So that was the big visitors last weekend. Uh, but Caleb, I, I want to kind of delve deeply on a, on a, on a, on another topic, which is over the last, over the last 10 days, OU has offered a number of quarterbacks. So we're seeing kind of a Seth Luttrell is down in charge of quarterback offers. And, you know, we've gone through a cycle where, you know, it was you know, Lincoln Riley would offer one five-star kid every other year. And then we had two years of Jeff Levy and, uh, and Levy was able to get Jackson Arnold very quickly. Um, he was then able to get Kevin Sperry super quickly. 
And then he was able to land um, Michael Hawkins uh, around around the spring game. And then he, he focused, uh, you know, he, then he offered some more guys because, oh, you just needed more QB depth. But we haven't really seen uh, a QB scholarship kind of competition in a while. And OU has five guys out there. Um, I'll quickly summarize them, then I'll like, bring Caleb in to talk about them and just talk about what Seth is doing and how interesting this is. Um, one is Noah Grubbs from Florida. He's a top-rated quarterback. He's 6'4", 205. Jared Curtis is from Nashville. And these are all 26 quarterbacks because obviously OU has Kevin Sperry for 25. Jared Curtis is from Nashville. He's probably the number one quarterback in the country for 26 right now. Uh, then you have Jaden O'Neill, who's from California, uh, 6'3", 200. Faison Brandon from North Carolina, who's picking up a lot of offers. And the last guy is Deron Coleman um, from Florida. He's kind of unranked right now. He's a little bit floating under the radar. Uh, he was actually able to beat out um, a high school senior who was an Elite 11 finalist called Trevor Jackson, who OU actually recruited. But Deron Coleman took his job. Deron's from the uh, Deron Coleman's from the Orlando area. So, Caleb, we've got five interesting quarterbacks, and we may actually have three or four of them show up in Norman before a decision is made. So uh, it's kind of a crazy – we haven't seen this in forever, so it's a little weird to kind of handicap this race. That's wild to think about. Uh, I, I maybe it just goes to show the value of having a guy like Sperry, you know, for Jeff Levy to have identified him when he did – you know, liked his, you know, liked his ability, liked his traits, liked his fit. And then for him to be as locked in to Oklahoma as he is, you know, I mean, sounds like, you know, I mean, family moved to moved to Midwest City, playing at Carl Albert. He's uh, recruiting every, probably every day, you know, every weekend for sure for OU for the 25 class. And he was doing it as of last summer, right? So I just, I guess, gives them so much ability and flexibility to look at these guys throughout uh, the country and try to identify. It's uh, it's wild to see them that far out in front. And then and I know we've talked a little bit about Will Griffin, uh, the kid at Tampa Jesuit, who I think is, you know, it, all the traits, all the ability in the world, 6'3", 220, uh, you know, run, throw. Uh, I think Oklahoma might have offered when, when Jeff was there, but haven't seen, I've only seen, you know, him getting Alabama. State Texas offers and things since, but uh, that's you know it's quarterback to me is such a difficult position in today's game to be able to judge from a from tape because so much is it is really uh, it's it's like two traits that are like you know again like how can you process information you know quickly on the fly and your accuracy. Uh, you can get a good, you can get a good, you can get a pretty good idea on accuracy processing. It's so difficult with the way offenses play these days. So I think them having this much time to truly get out, see these kids in person, talk to them, talk to their parents, talk to their high school coaches, and then get them on campus and talk to them to be able to filter through that mental side of it. I think that's to me the biggest part of the story. Uh, they're not rushed, just trying to, oh, got to try to get a guy. And not that that's what happened with like Nick Evers, but it is. 
you know, uh, Levy had a bit of a relationship, so he recruited him a little bit. But it was a kid committed to Florida. Brent got hired, and they're just struggling to try to find somebody. And they had no time to really dive in from, you know, between the ears perspective. Uh, and I don't say all that to say, like, that's why he left Oklahoma. It's just, you know, an example of having to do, you know, that important thing. Because when you watch, you know, the run up the NFL – most important piece for quarterbacks like it's it's not throwing in a t-shirt it is the chalk talk it's the interview process it's it's the other piece so you know i I think them having this amount of time to dig into that for me that probably gives me more uh trust that they likely to nail whoever it is from the 26th perspective if they get one of their top guys that they're it's more likely to be successful yeah, I, I'm wondering if OU's lost some momentum with um, with with Will Griffin because of uh, Levy leaving. Because he did come in for a game last fall, but you haven't heard him talking much about OU. Or maybe he has an offer and he's just not announced it. We just don't know anything about it. And he'll show up again and, and then he'll be back in that race. But it's, it's interesting that Latrell has offered five guys and, you know, they're not, they're not all clones of each other. They're, they all have different skills and abilities and, and, oh, yeah, they're they're very different because Coleman, you know, from watching his tape, and we talked about this, right? He's listed at six one two one sixty. I think he's probably heavier than one sixty, but he's not two hundred pounds, right? He's maybe a hundred yeah. hundred eighty pounds, hundred seventy five, hundred and eighty, which fine, right? The kid just played a sophomore year of high school football. Uh, guys like Will Griffin that are six three two twenty as a sophomore, that's super rare, uh, you know, on the whole. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting because there are, there, there's those guys, you know, the, the kid from Tennessee, you know, we're talking kids that are 6'4", 190 pounds, you know, whipping the ball all over the place. You know, oh, Coleman, he's, he's, uh, I'll call him a gunslinger, uh, but he, you know, more of a, I'll call him undersized playmaker. But, you know, yeah, again, he's not, he's not 6'4", he's not, you know, 210 pounds spraying the field everywhere. But what he is is, you know, uh, highly efficient, highly accurate. Which again, I think, you know, both those are are on the list of top five traits you want. Yeah, I'm just going to be fascinated to see what we can glean from maybe what Seth wants the offense to look like, and maybe what he's looking for in a quarterback with how this race shakes out a little bit. Um, Because in the past, you know the Lincoln, you know, is just, you know, other than other than he liked five stars, we didn't have like a lot of, didn't always have the biggest read on what he was looking for, and um, I don't know if he did. True, you know, if you really, yeah, that may be right because and look yeah. at his first one was what Chris Robinson. Well, I guess his first one was actually Austin Kendall, but again, that was one of those ones. No, it was where it was it was Robinson and then Kendall, I think. I think oh, that's right. I think I thought Kendall was who he signed like the first like Bob when Bob hired him, he was able to get Austin Kendall right away. Yeah, and it's then a little Chris you might you might be the, you might be right on that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think Robinson was the first kid that, and everybody was like, "Oh, well, you know, don't judge him on Austin Kendall." And Austin wasn't a bad quarterback; he just wasn't, no, you no, know, no. Sam Bradford or Baker and those guys. But you know, it was like, okay, well, then he goes and he gets Chris Robinson, and my God, you want to talk about a walking red flag? To me, that was like one of those first things of like kind of, well, I, well, I, I guess I just now thought of this kind of what I just talked about when you watch and you understand how NFL teams by and large are judging the quarterback position. The physical traits, yeah, those are important. 
but they're secondary to the mental and character. And Robinson was like the question of like, if I'm being nice, I would say, did, did Lincoln overlook that? If I'm being, you know, maybe not so nice, I would say like, does he attract white individuals uh, in that regard? Uh, because yeah, you, you know, I mean, help me out, Chris. Yeah, so Caleb was his secondary guy. He wasn't going to take it. Maybe in a second or third option. Who knows where he actually was on his board? But he had Brock Vandegrift number one. Took Brock. Brock. Uh, that, that's right. That's right. And then he took Brock uh, then, off the. Yeah, he took Brock off that sophomore film because this is this is the other interesting part, Caleb. Because the sophomore film for Brock Vandegrift was unbelievable, right? He looked like Aaron Rodgers out there. And then his junior year, he broke his collarbone early. Um, the famous story of Josh McQuistian from Sooner Scoop. I don't know why we keep giving him call-outs on our podcast, but anyway, regardless, he's just been around so long, you know, all the history. Josh went out, saw him, he broke his collarbone in that game. And so he was out. And then Caleb Williams' junior film from his sophomore film was like night and day, right? His junior film was like unreal. You were like, you know, Brock left us and, and everyone's like, oh, no. And then I pulled up Caleb's junior film and I'm like, well, we can get Caleb. I don't think there's much of a problem here because his junior film is fantastic. You know, yeah, and then yeah, you that's see, a really good point. And then you see Michael Hawkins, whose sophomore film's great. His junior film's was a dip. And then his senior year film is a great, was much, was fantastic. So it's, it's interesting. You got five, maybe six guys here and. The sophomore film tells you one thing. What does the junior film tell you? Um, do you push for a commit this summer, or do you try and wait and get as much junior film on these guys as you can? Um, so even like even the time frame of when Seth will take a commitment. Here's a I think here's a question. I mean, here's a question on this, and you know, if you want to pull back and, and ask the question of, okay, so many more quarterback offers. And, and even Heupel, I think, back in the day, he 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 made it where, you know, it was known, hey, I'm going to offer one or two kids. We're going to focus yeah. on these guys. These are my – this is – it was kind of like let it be known, right? We're not going to devalue the quarterback currency. We're, the, we're an elite quarterback program. And so if we offer you, you know, you should come here. I Seeing Seth spray out, you know, five offers to kids that are just sophomores. And it's likely that like you just walk through there, right? There's going to be kids that maybe played a little bit as a sophomore, but as a junior, they're going to be the guy and are going to just explode onto the scene and be potentially, you know, top 100 players. So you may see a, a big jump of more offers, you know, is that potentially a, a side effect of we now live in the day and age of portal land and no position transfers like quarterback. Where, you know, if you're a if you're a staff, you're like, look, we've got to establish relationships with ten quarterbacks every single recruiting class because the odds are a bunch of these every one of these kids, ninety percent of these kids are gonna hit a portal at some point. And if we need somebody, we've got a relationship. They've visited, they've taken on officials and officials, we can get them in here. I do wonder if there's some just, you know, playing chess rather than checkers. You know, that's a great point, Caleb, because when you think about when you think about what's going on and the ability to have relationships and and I think we'll see how it pans out. But I think Bill has 
Bill's been leveraging prior offensive lineman relationships in portal recruiting, right? Tarquin, um, Spencer Brown, Rouse. Um, even even I'd, even I'd uh, the way we having the way we were yeah. having a relationship with Seth. Yeah, John Cooper, who Bill knows. Um, so it's it's interesting if you're trying to do that on the quarterback side of things, just to protect yourself, right? Because you never know when you might need a quarterback. Because um, as you said, I mean, you know, OU's moving into this fall and has a, probably their best quarterback situation, depth and talent wise, that they've had. I think you know, in, in a long time, um, you know, the precarious situation Lincoln Riley had us in several years was was you know it was kind of like, well, we're just going to ignore the fact we have no QB depth, right? We're just going to ignore that and just focus on focus on the fact that quarterbacks don't seem to be getting injured and are just playing all the time. But that's just sort of, as you would say, that's like a hope, not a plan, right? Um, yeah. So it does it does seem that this is an interesting take, and I hadn't picked up on that that you know. You've got five. You've got five or six guys, as you said. If you get them on campus, you see them throw. You get experience. So if one of these guys does all of a sudden des- decide that he wants to, uh, he wants to bail um, from his other school, then oh, you can say Seth can say, "Hey, remember you visited us? We, you know, we'd like for you to come in <clears throat> just as a backup in case your your primary process isn't working." But I do think it'll be fascinating to see how Seth. Chooses a you know when does he when does he take a quarterback commit and um, what what else is going to go on in this process in terms of you know are there a couple more offers coming because uh, it is it is interesting because we have you know got to your point like Heupel was focused on like one or two guys like he offered Trevor Knight after the guy who went to Indiana and. Um, I started at Notre Dame, went to Indiana. Gunner um, Keel. I, I don't know Gunner, how that name popped into my head out of the middle I'm, of the I'm, like, I'm fumbling for it. I've mentioned the guy like a half dozen times. But, you know, Hypo was very much like I kind of got one guy. And then if that guy isn't by a certain date, it hasn't like figured stuff out. I'll add another guy. But, you know, there's never like five or six QB offers really um, with him that were, you know, actively in, actively in play. Because the other thing, it's not like he's offered – you know, three of these guys, they're verbal elsewhere. These guys are in play. So OU, for a couple of these guys, is probably their best offer from, you know, when you talk about quarterback brand kind of place. I mean, Faze and Brandon's starting to pick up some heat. And obviously, Jared Curtis has offers from everybody. But the other three, I think OU's probably their best, you know, probably their best offer. So it'll be an interesting story to track, and we'll keep tracking that. But we're going to move to our final segment but we're going to have some February signing day memories, and we're going to we're going to go back into the vault of of recruiting's past. And Caleb, I'm going to run down the top four best surprises that I can remember for signing day since 2000, the modern era of recruiting. Uh, so I'm going to run them down here for you and let you and let you give some feedback uh, on on if you remember any of these recruiting stories or what stood out to you. So number four is. When Nick Harris, safety for the national champ for the 2018, sorry, not national championship, should have been national championship team. Uh, he chose on signing day. He was verbaled, I believe, to Michigan. Was supposed to be going to LSU, and then shocked everyone by choosing uh, Oklahoma. Nick was a great, really good player for OU safety. Could have been a linebacker, 
uh, and another assistant, another day, you know, think five years later, you'd have made him a linebacker and, and that would have been his Gosh, destiny. If he, you he remember was, correctly, if you remember correctly, uh, 2008, the, uh, so Austin Box gets hurt in camp. So that's what really kind of blew up all the linebacker depth that year. Box gets hurt in, in, in fall camp. So he's yep. not ready to go. And against Texas, Ryan Reynolds gets his knee, blows his knee out. So they had to play again, Brandon Crow. Again, that did again. not go well because they just targeted Jamaica Finley at Crow and, and it really went after him. Again, that's, that's Oklahoma's, you know, far down the line from a depth perspective. Against Kansas the next week, they moved Nick Harris to Mike. And that yeah, Kansas team with, uh, God, who was, I don't remember the receiver they had. I think they threw for like he had like 270 yards receiving. Well, they had they had, had Reesing. They had Todd Reesing back then. Yeah, and they had a receiver they, that I think I can't remember. If I think the story is correctly, it was a receiver from the Dallas area. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was really State, good. Really yeah, good. And he 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 kind of beat up on Brian Jackson that game. Uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. So so Nick did play one game at linebacker. But he, you know, but in today's football, he would be a linebacker. They would have made him a linebacker from the very beginning. Um, Absolutely. But he was a good, he was a good sooner, good player, and to pull him on signing Great. day for away from LSU. I mean, he's from Louisiana, to, so pulling him from LSU um, on signing day, you know, you just didn't do that. The next one is the classic story of Ryan Broyles. Uh, for those that don't remember, sooner great, but he really almost was an OSU cowboy. He verbaled to OSU. OU kind of fumbled his recruiting and offered him late, like maybe a week before signing day. Um, got him on campus for a visit. Uh, and then he flipped to OU. And then like the day before signing day, he flipped back to OSU. And then it was literally what listening to the radio, listening to the radio to uh to WWLS. Um the sports, uh, sports, you know, uh, sports, uh, you know, the OU, the Oklahoma City Sports Channel, and and one of the one of their guys was like at Norman. He broke in, you know, from their coverage. He said Ryan Brawls just signed with OU. I just watched him sign a piece of paper that said OU on it. So uh, OSU fans were, you know, were just so and annoyed. Then, uh, I was fixing to say, I remember I think Mike Gundy went on some rants and really ripped into. Yeah. He was pissed. He was pissed. Yeah, he didn't. I think he couldn't mention Ryan's name specifically. No, he no, was, no. He, yeah, but it he was, was not really obvious. It's like local player, and you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was so it was just classic. But OU really nearly fumbled that recruiting and nearly lost the guy. I mean, for those that, that don't don't recall, Ryan Broyles should have won a. Belitnikov. He got hurt his senior year against Texas A&M, and he was on the way to breaking the, re- the reception record, um, the Nancy A reception record, and, and he was going to win a Belitnikov. It was his turn. Um, so it was just to think that he almost wasn't as sooner is, is somewhat scary. And the next guy, actually, it's a little scary to think if he wasn't as sooner too. So signing day, uh, uh, so I'm in, living in Chicago, and uh, everyone OU signed everyone that day. So I go out for lunch, go to my famous, my favorite shawarma, chicken shawarma place, uh, where they make fresh pita, just fantastic. And all of a sudden, my flow, my phone blows up because OU has signed Orlando Brown, and literally no one knew OU was signing Orlando Brown at all. I mean, it was like who? I mean, it wasn't who because. You know, if you know Orlando Brown's dad was an NFL star, 
Um, I knew the name Orlando Brown from recruiting. OU was talking to him, and then he verbaled to Tennessee, and he thought it fell off the radar. Well, Tennessee oversigned, and they were afraid Brown wasn't going to be eligible. So Bill Biedenbaum, at the 11th hour, was able to steal Orlando Brown. He'd fallen in the rankings a little bit, um, had an uneven year at uh, at his high school. I think it was, uh, I think he was in like maybe North Gwinnett or um, something like that. And his Orlando's dad had passed away while he was in high school, and I kind of derailed derailed things for for Orlando, as you can imagine. So he was able to pick him up, like. Out of nowhere, uh, but Caleb and obviously Orlando was. I, I, he was if he wasn't a two-time All-American, he should have been. You know the the left tackle anchor uh, of those great teams. But Caleb, when we now now that I think back on it, if OU hadn't got Orlando Brown, I don't oh know who gosh. the hell's playing left tackle. I don't know who's playing left tackle. No, I have no clue. You know because that was also you look at uh, fifteen. You know his redshirt freshman year. Yeah, you know, the uh, the top lineman in that class, I think, offensive line classes, I can remember fairly well. I guess was Kenyon Fryson, the uh, top one hundred or top two fifty player out of Utah, and I think he failed a bunch of drug tests and got another shot, failed another drug test, and was out, and never did, never did. He was going to be starting, you know. He, hey, yeah. here's, here's going to be one of your starting tackles. Is he was the next, he was he was the next big thing. He's the next big yeah, thing, he, right? He was like, oh, he, this guy's he great. was that talented. Yeah. Like everybody knew, like, hey, he's going to be our starter at probably right tackle. Like, he's going to be our guy. And it was thought, okay, well, that Josiah St. John, who was, I think, the number one junior college tackle, he'll probably be the left. Well, Fryson gets kicked off the team. Uh, St. John plays plays right. And you've got Orlando over there as a, as a registered freshman playing playing your left tackle spot. And, uh, you know, and St. John actually struggled so much. They had to put Drew Smee in as a true freshman at that right tackle. I've always said that, you know, that year, Lincoln's probably one of the best offensive coordinator jobs I've ever seen anybody do because the offensive line with, with Samia and then Alvarez, uh, inside at guard, like it was not, it was, the offensive line was not good. <laughs> and he, 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 he just, he did some, he did some magic with Baker as well. But, uh, man, you, yeah. You, you know, and that that's offensive one of the best line ones. at that that, 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 that offensive and at the end of the year that Baylor game, Orlando like um, owned Sean Oakman that night. It was, well, crazy. was gonna say like yeah yeah. Uh, all I was gonna say is you know when you really look at like Orlando, uh, his time at Oklahoma, the, the NFL career he's gone on to have right. Uh, I mean I I probably got to say you know he's. I mean, he's top three, top five offensive lineman. I mean, top five offensive lineman to ever play at Oklahoma. You know, which is when you look at how good he was, how consistent he was, how he played. You know, you've also, you know, you've got some guys like Davin Joseph and, uh, you know, some in Trent and Jamal Brown. And, you know, obviously there's some, some guys, you know, in Switzer's time that were fantastic guys, but, you know, Orlando, I think he was maybe a two-time All-American, part of the Joe Moore Award-winning offensive line. Played in two college football playoffs. I think won three uh, Big Twelve championships in his three years starting. Yeah, I mean he was uh, just a just an absolute stalwart at that left tackle spot. That's a uh, I've always thought that was one of the better. He did the work of getting the weight off. He and Schmitty, 
right? He and Jerry Schmidt got the weight off and got in shape. But I really think, you know, I've always thought that the coaching job Bill did with him of just, and, and you know, Lando take, gets most of the credit too, right? But understanding, I don't have the quickest feet, but what I have is maybe the longest wingspan in all of football. Like any level, got the longest arms, you know, and utilizing that, utilizing his strengths, you know, uh, and diminishing his his weaknesses, he just got the absolute most out of them. It's it's a really good one. That's a good one. Yeah, when you think about it, there's only well, and we'll go just like the Bob Stoops era, you know, forward. Um, there's only three tackles I think at OU that were better, um, and we're talking Trent Williams, <laughs> Lane Johnson, and, and Jamal Brown. That and honestly, that, I would honestly, I would honestly say I think you know. Uh, I mean, Lane would probably disagree with me. He's a competitive dude. I, I would probably say, in terms of a college tackle, Orlando. Yeah, you're right. Maybe. Lane. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, Lane. But, but you know, he, he moved to tackle late. He, he's so yeah. he's been so good in the NFL. He's one of the. He'll probably be a Hall of Famer. Uh, but yeah, Orlando, you know, had one heck of a college run. But if, even if you did say Lane was better, I mean, that's oh, yeah. three. Dude, those three guys that he's in the same name category with. That's that's high water, right? I mean, that is. All, I mean, you know, everybody, everybody you just mentioned is uh, everybody you mentioned made Pro Bowls, and I think yeah. you know. I mean, obviously Trent and, and Lane have made multiple All Pro teams. Uh, Jamal yeah, had like an eight. Jamal had an eight year. I mean, we're saying he's better. We're saying multiple Pro Bowls. Yeah, we're saying that he's probably that Jamal had a better pro career than Phil Lothal, and that's saying. I mean, a better college career than Phil Lothal, and that's saying a lot. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's. Because Phil was, I mean, that's, you know, that's, as you said, that's some rarefied air that, you know, that to take a, a guy you weren't even planning on signing, right? That Tennessee was, for lack of a better term, throwing away. Um, it, it's, it's a classic signing day story. And the number one best surprise, the best story from February, positively for OU, it's got to, I mean, it's got to be the most recent one. It is Peyton Bowen. Um, you, 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 Literally, it's the wildest uh, one, that's for sure. It's, you're, <laughs> it's you know, he, he chooses Notre Dame like December of 2022. I think, no, no, I got that wrong. He chooses him 2021, like right after Lincoln left. Uh, OU is like right, right, and was very much uh, gonna at a battle to sign him. Lincoln left, and then uh, Peyton chose Notre Dame, and then the next year. Peyton Bowen is in Norman like every other three weeks. And we heard like everybody who had any kind of a connection in Denton is because we had just started our site is calling us, telling us that he's, he's flipping to OU, right? His brother's uncle's sisters, painters, cousin, you know, has, has talked to Bowen and said, you know, Peyton's going to flip to OU. You know, his, well, his girlfriend his soc- was committed to the soccer team. Yeah. Yes. Girlfriend was committed to the soccer team. Jackson Arnold was his best friend. So, so we go 12 months of waiting for him to flip to the point where, like, everybody was putting in predictions he was going to flip. And he never flipped. He visited OU um, for Bedlam, I think, uh, in Thanksgiving. And he didn't flip. And then on signing day, he says he's going to make a final announcement, his final recruiting announcement. We're like, oh, it's, you know, OU's got a great shot at here. He then has a little ceremony. There's no OU hat. And it's just, and it's these two weird hats 
for Oregon and Notre Dame. They're not like, you know, the, the it was hard to tell out, tell who he's really picking because it wasn't like the, the classic Notre Dame colors, the blue uh, or a green hat, or, and it wasn't the typical Oregon green or yellow or something like that. So he picks Oregon, and then all your OU fans are like, oh, man, what the hell just happened? So everybody sort of walks away from it. You know, we just signed a really good class. Regardless, we had PJ and, and you know, had just signed, you know, our best class in forever. So everyone's like, oh, okay, well, that's, that's disappointing. It's a real disappointment. And then we start getting rumblings that he hasn't signed. Oregon doesn't have his letter of intent. And then by the evening, we find out that there's no consensus in the Bowen household. And then, like, his mom wants him to go to Notre Dame. His dad wants him to go to Oregon. And then we're hearing that Peyton really wants to go to Oklahoma. And then Thursday morning, we start getting tipped off that he's signing with Oklahoma. He's sending in that letter of intent that OU has landed the number two safety in the country. Caleb Downs, the, the, who, who was at Alabama and is now at Ohio State, uh, was number one. And, uh, but Bowen was right behind him. Uh, so Caleb is just, it's, it was crazy. And there was like a technicality on his letter of intent that allowed all this to happen. That's the wild one. I don't think it's ever been, you know, cause I can recall the week before, maybe two weeks out from signing day, it was Oregon showed up. He took a trip to Oregon. They yep. showed up to maybe Denton and the NIL offer they were giving him was like astronomical. I think that Tom Lloyd on, you know, the Notre Dame site came out and said, you know, Oregon's offering him $750,000 or some astronomical number to, to sign with Oregon. You know, Oregon is, you know, NILU and they're throwing crazy money around and trying to get him to flip. So I, I don't, it's to me, it's still odd that it was, I think he said it right during his ceremony came down to Oregon and Notre Dame. I'm going to choose Oregon. Signs the paperwork. Does not date it. Sends it in. Hey, you got to have a date on it. And it's, and it's like, so he sent us the updated one. And he's like, I actually think I want to go to Oklahoma. Like that's to me, it's just like, how did we get from there to there in like a couple hours? So I know Brent, you know, he's, again, it's kind of we're talking like really a lot earlier is just, you know, the, the, the level of consistency and how that compounds through time. And so like him just always being there and always being consistent and never stopping working and all of that. I mean, obviously it paid off, but I'm just between what occurred between Peyton's ears in that really short time to be like, Oklahoma's not in consideration here to I'm going to go to Oklahoma and I'm going to be a freshman all American. And I would expect him to start <laughs> this year. It's just, it's a, it, it talk about a wild, wild turn. Maybe that, that really, yeah, recruitment pretty much sums up recruiting in this day and age, where it's like every which way but loose. The numbers being tossed around are stupid. In, and then a decision yeah. gets made that leaves you scratching your head going like, how did we arrive here? Yeah, that's the, that's the best surprise. Um, so the, the worst surprise, and it's an obvious one I've got to go with, it's um, he who shall not be ever mentioned. Uh, this game was literally banned from um, the Rivals message board for 10 years. Uh, it's, he's the recruiting Voldemort for OU. It is Robert Beecham, Booker T. Washington wide receiver. Now, this story is, all, is, is, is so bizarre that he nearly verbal to OU. Place. 
Yeah, it's, it's all, it, it and, really, and it has been for twenty years because you know <laughs> I've read maybe three different interviews with Robert Meacham where he's told three different versions of why he chose Tennessee and not Oklahoma. And I think I mentioned to you, right? I had some some really and good they're not consistent. You know, best friend they're from not consistent. They're not. Yeah, yeah. It was like one of, one of them in the first one. It was this. The second one it was like I was never going to Oklahoma. And blah blah blah. Then the third one it was like well. And it's just like they, and none of them match up, which reminds me, like, it was like a famous story where, like, 9-11 happened. They interviewed some people the day after. And then 20 years later, they interviewed those same people just to get them. And something like 17 of the 20 people gave completely different stories. And it was like, well, the day after, you were actually in New York. Like, no, nah, I was in Cleveland. Like, now nah, you're actually wrong. We interviewed you on the street in New York. It, yeah, you know, the, so it's the like shock of, the shock of that whole incident. Yeah. So it's like yeah, the time, you know, and, and time right. does something to, like, the memory. Right. Yes. So, you know, me a couple there for Robert, like having multiple versions of like what went down and why. But that is absolutely for I can remember uh, him as a recruit, just in the sense of like he went to it was like when when Nike first started to do their uh, recruiting camps, he showed up at a camp and measured six, three, like 198 or 202 pounds and ran like a, a fat ran an electronic timed four two eight. And everybody was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, that's like a prototypical, you know. And it's at the height of Oklahoma being, you know, national champions, playing for multiple national champions, you know, throwing the ball to Mark Clayton, everybody. Everybody thought he's going to Oklahoma. And, and Bob actually delayed his press conference to allow Beecham to announce because he wanted to include Beecham in the press conference statement. So <laughs> Bob actually... OU, everybody at OU thought he was coming. And and um, back in the day, so somebody sent a reporter to it and he's like providing like sort of these, you know, you know, over update over kind of messages. And um, and then he said, yeah, Robert Meacham's here. Yeah, he goes, and he, and he signs with Tennessee over. And like, what what did you just say? And the, the message board meltdown on it was absolutely apocalyptic. It was it was imagine every bill melt down and multiplied by about like thirty, and it was just it was it was absolutely insane. It was crazy. So that's the, those are the OU stories. So OU's moving to the SEC. So I thought I'd pull some of the great recruiting stories from the SEC just to give us some perspective on what OU's moving towards. So Caleb, I'm going to run through four of them. Um, if you've got any other gems, yeah, let me know. But well, the first I'll, one is so. Let me just say this before you get going. Yeah. I have to. I saw this online when Tennessee and Virginia filed the lawsuit against the NCAA after the NCAA came out and said that the University of Tennessee's NIL had done all kinds of shady, illegal things. And they threw a big fit. But I saw someone point this out and they said, here's the number of NCAA infractions by university the last, it was either 15 or 20 years, right? And it was like, it's all SEC schools. You know, it's like Vanderbilt's three, Alabama's like six, Florida's five. Every program is lumped in right there until you get to Auburn. It's like, so everybody has like between six and three, Auburn, 19. And then Tennessee quietly just looks at him and says, hold my beer, watch this. Tennessee, 43 major NCAA infractions. It was like, you know. I've joked before, like everything you think that the NC, that the SEC does that's wrong is usually just Auburn. I'm like I was wrong. It's Auburn and Tennessee. 
it's like all the old school stuff of like, oh, this is illegal. They're doing something shady. It's just that backdoor recruiting. It's like, yeah, it's Tennessee and Auburn. Because and I guess probably because they hate Alabama, but uh, just to let you know when you're walking into is a walking NCAA infraction. Yeah. So, so Caleb, yeah, the SEC, as you said, just uh, we're walking into a snake pit. So, and historically, here's some of the best, uh, well, best best stories, greats. We'll call them great stories. So, the first one is Alex Collins, the running back from Arkansas, who had a pretty good NFL career with the Ravens. His mom ran off with his letter of intent that he had to sign, refusing to let him sign with Arkansas. She wanted him to go somewhere else. So she basically left with it for a while before they could resolve the situation. Then we have Reuben Foster, the linebacker, uh, had an NFL, brief NFL career. Um, He flipped back to Alabama, signed with Alabama on signing day, but not after, but he'd already gone out and gotten an Auburn tattoo Two days before signing day, <laughs> I don't know how you. I, don't, I have no idea how you make that UA symbol into into an elephant. Maybe there's some way to trick to do that. Then the famous one that most folks can remember: Landon Collins on ESPN live national television picks Bama over LSU, and his mom just has like a complete meltdown on national TV. She when he says that he she has a stunned look on her face. She's unhappy, I think. Uh, Caleb, did she have? Did she like have some interview afterwards where she kind of went a little yeah. bit crazy? Well, I, I don't know if there was an interview after. I can recall ESPN playing that over and over. And on the stage at the, I guess it was Under Armour, they did it on the field and they had a little stage set up. On that, she's like, <laughs> the guy goes, I can see you're not happy. And leans over like, live TV, kid just, her son just made an announcement. She's like, nah. We gonna see about this. LSU still number one. Uh-uh, this ain't happening. Like she was pissed, and like literally is like crapping on Alabama, talking up LSU right there on live TV. It was like wow. Like uh, it, you know, it's an interesting one. And then we have Cyrus Koanju, uh, the big offensive tackle. I think he's the big offensive tackle. Eric Stryker abused in that OU Bama Sugar Bowl. The one he went you flying past, he went flying past him, smacked um, uh, AJ AJ McConnell. Is that right? Um, McCarran smacked him. Brent, McCarran, Brent Musburger's arch enemy. Yes, because of the because of his girlfriend. Because um, his girlfriend, yeah. Because <laughs> he that he was basically like leech, you know. Leering at you know during broadcast, got him fired. It was like a basically just like <laughs> like you're like sexually assaulting a woman via television <laughs> live at a football game, and you're eighty, she's twenty. Like this is like beyond. We've jumped a shark of what awkward is. <laughs> but anyway, so if you if you remember the play where Stryker flies around a tackle, that's him. You know, smashes McCarron, and then. Um, OU scores the touchdown, and they and they and they pan to McCarron's girlfriend, who's doing the uh, version of Surrender Cobra after OU scores the touchdown. But so, but anyway, so Cyrus commits to Auburn on live national TV on ESPN. Then it's found out he never faxed in his letter of intent. He double backed, and then the next day he signed with Alabama. So 
Alabama and Auburn are in a lot of these are in a lot of these issues. So that was that's that what Jim Chizik kind of, version of Auburn, where like the stories yeah. about the illegal stuff they were doing. It was a oh. Trooper Taylor. Trooper mm. Taylor got a show clause because he gave what was it? He gave somebody at a school like twenty thousand dollars to alter a kid's grades in order to be able to get him into Auburn. It was like. Again, like it was basically bad. everything bad. shady you can think of, like Auburn. Well, that's the, that's the Cam Newton. That's the Cam Newton era too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <I> mean, <laughs> what was it? Was it one hundred fifty or two hundred fifty thousand dollars to his dad? I mean, just insane. Well, for to his church, to his dad's to church. his church. Yeah, yeah. Give a donation. <laughs> Give a donation. So that's the craziness. Um, I couldn't find a reference, but the, in the early two thousands, there was a kid who sent two letters of intent in. He was so confused. He sent two in, and, the, and they basically invalidated each other. So the NCAA had to intercede with the kid and basically say, where do you want to go and send one to us? That's it. Because the two schools were both claiming they signed him. They, put, they basically put out their signing day lists publicly, and both schools listed him on their signing day public websites. And it was like and a reporter picked up and was like, did you see this? They're like, yeah, has he signed it to? You can't do that, right? No, no, you can't do that. Um, but just classic stories, you know, in the eighties, Switzer, in the seventies and eighties, Switzer just has some absolutely classic stories about, you know, Chris, who was the who was the five star running back out of Louisiana? And this would have been like circa six, seven, eight, somewhere in there, that signed with USC and Pete Carroll on signing day. In like the McKnight, entire state McKnight. of Louisiana, McKnight, yeah, Joe McKnight. I remember like the entire state of Louisiana blowing a gasket. <laughs> he went in. It was like on the back of you know Reggie Bush was just Reggie Bush, and you know here is the next Reggie Bush in the state of Louisiana going to go to LSU, and uh, Pete Carroll snaps him up on on signing day, and like the state of Louisiana was like. Announcing like you know a trade embargo against the state of California, they were that mad. It was uh, <laughs> yeah. Funny. The other the other major running back flip I remember, and this was just and there wasn't anything weird. It just the kid just flipped on signing day. Was Lorenzo Booker, uh, running back, top running back in like in the nation, flipped from Notre Dame yeah. to FSU on signing day, and it was like yeah, especially was like, Bobby Bowden was like the closer. Bobby Bowden, he wouldn't yeah, he Bobby, didn't. He he famously didn't do like any off campus recruiting until the very end of January, early February, and then he would go in house with everybody, and it was like everybody just started flipping and and Florida State. (laughs) Yeah, they they were they were they were a powerhouse. It was just crazy, but um, so that's our that's our ode to signing day. Um, I'm not, you know, because December signing day hasn't been this weird yet, although although it did have the the aforementioned uh, Peyton Bowen incident. So, Caleb, we're going to completely switch gears and give me your Super Bowl score and uh, and and if you have any great feelings about the game, uh, let's give our readers, uh, our listeners, uh, sorry, uh, a little bit of insight. What do you think the score is going to be, and whatever insight you'd care to share. I don't have any really good insight. I sometimes I'll just out of curiosity, kind of like I was going to lay some money on the Lions uh, versus Niners game, but I thought that I thought the uh, the spread was too big, and for what the for what the Lions do from a run game perspective, I thought they'd have tons of success and keep it closer than that. 
and I should have. Uh, but I haven't really dug in on this one. I, I do feel like the Niners pass rush should have a lot of success, but I kind of feel like Andy Reid's and he obviously is an all timer. He's smart enough to know that he's going to probably run the ball a lot. Uh, I want the 49ers to win, you know, a couple of reasons. I, I, I think it one, it would be hilarious watching everybody I heard Lewis Riddick say this, but just twist themselves up into a pretzel trying to explain away via any number of excuses how Brock Purdy could lead a team to a Super Bowl, uh, particularly against Pat Mahomes. But at the same time, it's like I'll, it's, you can't really bet against Patrick Mahomes in today's NFL because it, you know, the way the rules are written and the way he complains, and he, I guess he should, he can use the officials to his, you know, if somebody breathes on him really heavy, he gets a call. And the refs have no qualms about throwing multiple 15-yard flags on a game-winning drive in order to extend it for the Chiefs. So I'll probably take the Chiefs, you know, 31-24. But I want the the Niners to win. I I can't get past – I think the Niners are maybe more talented top to bottom. Um. But I, I can't get past Brock Purdy versus Patrick Mahomes, right? I, I can't. Yeah, well, get, here's you know, the crazy thing: you know, Brock Purdy's actually they're not number playing, five. They're not playing each other. No, they're not. I always hated that too, right? It's like, well, this team's got the better yeah, offensive yeah. line than that team. And it's like, well, but offensive lines play against defensive lines and front seven. So I don't yeah, know what yeah. you're talking so, about. So I mean, I hate that. So, like, I hate using that, but but it's Mahomes yeah, I versus. I feel like you know Brock Purdy. Yeah. We watched well, it's Brock just that Purdy, whole thing, right? right? It's like. If, if the if the if the Niners don't pull away from it, pull away, and they and it's within even fourteen, you know, with ten minutes to go in the fourth quarter, it's like I still would bet Mahomes will pull something out again, particularly with just the way the game is called today, because yeah, it's, you yeah, know yeah. the Niners really can't even heat Mahomes up because oh it's going to be a flag, you know, and we're going to give him fifteen free yards. I, I would say like like small insights would be. I, one of the reasons I kind of like the Chiefs as well is, you know, in a one-game scenario, Chris Jones is probably going to be dominant on the interior of the defensive line for the Chiefs. And the interior of the offensive line, I think, is probably the weakest point for the 49ers. So it's strength versus weakness. Uh, but if the 49ers could just run the crap out of the ball and keep Mahomes on the sideline, you know, I'd love to see. I, I would, I you know, I uh, as a kid, I liked watching uh, Steve Young and, the 49ers, so uh, kind of, I guess, missed a little bit of Montana. Like, I may have saw Wilbur Marshall, whoever it was, almost kill him. But, uh, yeah, I remember, I, remember, I remember that Montana um, and then the young Super Bowls in the 80s. I'm like, yeah, yeah, the Niners are cool. Yeah, like the yeah. Niners. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Bill Walsh is probably – Bill Walsh is, to me, one of my one of the top three – one of my top three favorite coaches of all time. Read some of his books and – I guess multiple of his books is, is you know, documentaries. I, I love, I'm a Bill Walsh guy. So I'm pulling for the Niners. So, so we have, you said 34, 21, 24, 31, 30, 24, 31, 24. Yeah. Chiefs. Well, I'll go similar chiefs and I'll go something a little less scoring. Maybe I'm going to go with a 24, 21 chiefs win on a, on a last second field goal that, Maybe aided by a on a, a roughing the passer call. 
roughing the passer or a pass interference like last year against the Eagles. And, yeah, you know, just something where they're, like, they're calling that. Are they really calling that? Yeah, they did. Calling that All in right. this moment? Like, that's the thing that always surprised about Mahomes, like the, the roughing calls, is it can be like a game-winning drive and somebody, you know, goes to bat the ball down and their hand grazes his face mask, you know, doesn't hit, right, grazes. And you'll see the flag come out and you're like, it's – playoffs and they're down by four and there's a minute to go and it's third and eight and you're going to throw that okay okay i guess we just don't care you know i i saw montana break up a really good point he was on dan patrick's show i've seen all the quarterbacks from that era Bledsoe, all these guys Bledsoe in particular he brought up a good point he was like you know he's like i understand protecting the quarterback he's like but you know you've got guys like even mahomes right and josh allen that are so big and strong, like you've got to be able to take these guys down. You can't, you know, they're bigger than the right. linebackers or defensive ends. And Montana had a really good point. He said, like, it's such an important piece of like just hitting the quarterback. In his mind, you should be able to hit the quarterback, you know, as long as you're not, you know, striking at the knees or whatever, but strike the quarterback the way you would strike any other player. Just do not allow them to drive them into the ground like don't pick them up and come down with all your weight on like he was saying he goes that's where really all the injuries occur is when the player comes down on you with all the weight so if it's just striking you it's no big deal all right well cool well thanks everyone for listening to our re-recording of this we apologize about it being a couple of days late but uh hopefully we'll, we'll get this pot out to you on sunday and maybe we'll find out if our super bowl predictions are going to be prophetic or not Thanks, everyone, for subscribing and listening. Let's hope mine's wrong. I hope yours is wrong. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for subscribing. And we will talk to you again next week.